welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast that's not only about the past and all its complexity, but also about how historians write history and how everyone can think about it. For more information about this or any episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can also sign up for our twice-a-month newsletter. Hello. Historians are always interested in how things change over time, and it helps for the survival of the profession that most things do. But how do things change? How does the social order change? And how, from time to time, does radical change in the social order occur? And not only occur, but succeed. My guest David Potter untangles these important questions in his new book, Disruption, Why Things Change. David Potter is Francis W. Kelsey, Collegiate Professor of Greek and Roman History, and Arthur F. Turnau, Professor of Greek and Latin, making him a man with at least two chairs in his University of Michigan office. Previously, he has written on prophecy and history, the origins of the Roman Empire, and on sport in the Greco-Roman world, and many other books besides. David Potter, welcome to Historically Thinking. Thank you very much for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here and to talk to you today. So, disruption. Um, You very early on say um, that to the reader, well, you might have thought I would call this book Revolutions but I'm not going to talk about revolutions. I'm going to talk about disruptions. So you obviously thought about that very carefully. What's the reason for disruption rather than the ubiquitous revolution? Well, it's really exactly what you just said. We use the word revolution for all kinds of different things, which don't necessarily work out. They don't necessarily result in any kind of long-term change. So what I wanted to do was to focus on events from which there was no going back. Um, Sometimes in a quite positive way, um, other times uh, in a thoroughly destructive way. Uh, But the end result was the society had changed uh, in a really very profound way that new ideas were driving uh, the action. as we had, you know, in in our first disruption of Christianity. I mean, this is a completely fringe movement that all of a sudden becomes the central ideology of the Roman Empire and changes the way people think. Um, And this is true in each of the different cases uh, that we we look at, that even with a failed disruption, you can't go back uh, to the way you were. Mm -hmm. So it it is like going over the waterfall. Uh, Exactly. Exactly. And it, it, it strikes me, um, thinking about this, that whatever the positive benefits, um, all of these disruptions are destructive. That's right. The old order cannot be restored at the end of it. Yes. And lives are lost. Uh, civiliza- civilizations, plural, crumble. Um, whatever comes is... It's fire. Uh, this is you get very Heraclius. Uh, I begin to think Heraclius has a point that you know the world is fire. The essential element of the world is fire, and in disruption, that's when the fire erupts and it, it changes everything. That's that's ab- absolutely right. Um, and what you also see in each one of these cases is that there's been a prior failure of the previous uh, political system and of the ideas on which it's based. Mm-hmm. Uh, that you've lost a capacity uh, to function, and not just the political system, because we'll, as we'll get to, right. there's the something. Prof- 
they they no longer command any kind of assent. Yeah, you know, it doesn't work for us. Yeah. Well, could we? Um, I'm not. <laughs> each of these uh, disruptions uh, occupies um, battalions, divisions of historians uh, over time. Uh, so we. Um, Let's very quickly to make sure that the listeners know what they'll find in the book and and to see where your mind went. Um, let's could you enumerate list the disruptions in, in in order through the book and then we'll start to tackle them one by one. Okay. Well, the first one was uh, the conversion to Christianity, Constantine's decision to become a Christian, which has profound effects both on the way the Christian Church worked and on how the Roman Empire worked. Uh, and then on the sort of whole intellectual makeup of Western Europe going forward. The second disruption is the rise of Islam. Um, and here again, we have a set of ideas coming from outside the, uh, the center of power uh, through the career of Muhammad, uh, which with the failure of the Roman and Persian empires, the world system that's been in place uh, for hundreds and hundreds of years, uh, with its collapse at the beginning of the 7th century and the Arab conquest, we have ultimately, with Abdul Malik, the forging of a new political system and a completely new uh, political order in the, uh, in the Middle East. Our third disruption, we get a, uh, a completely different view of Christianity from one that Constantine would have known if he'd, uh, if he'd uh, come back to life in 1500. He would have uh, run screaming from the room, I think. Uh, the idea that the emperor had to negotiate power with a bishop, um, but Christianity has evolved into a very rigid system of thought um, and extremely extractive. Uh, and what we can see at the beginning of the time is of this period is that people are raising questions about the validity of Christian doctrine. Um, why does it work in, in the way that it's working? Uh, we have a new threat from outside with the rise of the Ottoman Turks, um, rumors of new wealth coming from a new world, and uh, things don't look the same. And all of a sudden, you have a crisis in Central Europe and an astonishing alteration of political of thought, both politically and intellectually, uh, driven by a new technology, the printing press. Um, this question of a, of a technology and the control of technology is going to be a really important one in our next series of disruptions, uh, mm -hmm. which is a way that you can take political theory, uh, uh, which is, again, derived very much on the fringe of the political order, uh, the idea that government is responsible to the people. I mean, in a, in a world of royal power, this is a, a really radical notion um, and we can see, first of all, how it's used to build a new society successfully in the Constitution of the United States. Uh, and at the same time, in France, uh, where the authority of the king has been challenged over a long period of time in a period of fiscal crisis, all of a sudden the court loses complete control of the conversation. Uh, we can see the rise of the press, the domination of the press. Uh, on the left wing of French society, um, the destruction of royal power, uh, but then the failure to build a new political society, the extreme radicalism of the terror, uh, which ultimately gives away to a dis dysfunctional directorate and finally to a completely different kind of monarchy with Napoleon Bonaparte. 
So our question is, why does it work in one place and fail in another? Mm -hmm. um, and then our uh, last disruptions um, are, again, the use of alternative theories. First of all, Marxism um, in the hands of Lenin, which Marx probably wouldn't have recognized uh, all that well either, um, and uh, to uh, make the Bolshevik Revolution a success in 1917. I mean, it wasn't at all clear what was going to happen when the Tsar fell, but again, we had a collapse of central government authority uh, and its uh, replacement from the fringe. And then in 1930s, uh, in Germany, the same thing. The Great Depression undermines the German political system, opening the door for Hitler, uh, who Hindenburg thought he could control. One of the easily stupidest things that anybody ever said. But unfortunately, um, it's also an error that's been made at other times. Yeah, it's you not the first time. somebody that you think you can control. And I think we've seen that fairly recently in this country. And um, that's why the epilogue takes us to January 6th, 2021. So rather than, um, and we're not historical sociologists, so I don't want to lay out a template and jam events into it. Um, yes, that was an unkind cut. Uh, but I want to uh, go through several of these um, disruptions. And then at the end, sort of go back to your introduction and talk about the the sort of these general these these uh, the general characteristics and disruptions and what can be learnt from them. Um, let's start with uh, Constantine and Christianity. Um, uh, what are some of the if as you're looking at this disruption? Um, well, we had um, a couple of years ago. I think Tom Holland was on the podcast talking about his book uh, Dominion, which is an attempt to convey for a classicist to explain to modern people how different the really it's how different the classical world is than a modern atheist considers the modern world to be and how Christianity is at the root of many of those changes. So let's talk about uh, why people first were becoming Christian um, in the second century. You, you talk about, you say uh, there's a very, you have a very, you just describe this uh, as, as two of the initial reasons or two of the, some of the two of the appeals of Christianity following Jesus's death, are risk and fellowship. Could you elucidate that? Yes, well, Christian communities uh, are very tightly knit. Um, and if you are tired of the you know, sort of uh, value system of a classical city, which is, you know, uh, rich makes right, um, a Christian community is a far more egalitarian community than you would see in most uh, ancient cities. So that's certainly one appeal uh, to it. Um, uh, and then this risk-taking. I mean, mm. if you look at ancient literature, who are the heroes? That's These right. are people who take risks, who put themselves uh, in danger. And there's a sense, as you become a Christian, you know, in rejecting the conventional value system, you know, most people probably don't care most of the time. But still, you're setting yourself apart. And there is a real inherent risk to this. You really could end up uh, in a meeting with a lion. Yeah. And um, so uh, you're, you are just as much a Spartan as any Spartan in the line at, at a Plataea or at, uh, at, at Thermopylae. You're undergoing the ultimate Aegon. That's absolutely, absolutely right. And 
uh, in a world where dangerous sport is uh, <laughs> the key entertainment, um, yeah. and a, a Christian will describe themselves as an athlete for God. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's not St. Really, Paul does it, but then I, I think a lot of the early Latin fathers, several of the early Latin fathers used the same imagery as well. Oh, uh, absolutely. And, um, you know, the experience of martyrdom is called an agon, a struggle, which is exactly the same word for a wrestling match. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or how a Spartan would uh, would would refer to a battle. Exactly. I mean, that was you know that 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 the culminating moment of one's development. Yep. And if you are on the path to martyrdom, you also see yourself as literally re-experiencing the fate of Christ. You don't get that in other ancient cults. Right. So you. Um, this is the other. This is the other part. Is that. Um, all the ancient cults, all the ancient philosophies, um, which are also not just, there, there are ways of being, not just of, of thinking. Um, they all have stories about founders. Um, but this is, a, this is a participatory story. Exactly. Exactly. You can think about Plato all the time. You can think about Aristotle. Um, but that's very much in the past. And re-experiencing the career of Christ is something that's very unlike um, the experience of being a Platonist. Uh, it's interesting that the closest you seem to get is again in the third century with Plotinus and Neoplatonism, uh, which again shows us that people are are looking for new ways of um, interpreting uh, thought from the distant past, of, of reinterpreting it uh, for themselves. Mm-hmm. And and I suppose also uh, I don't know if you referenced I don't think you referenced this but I was thinking that um, I believe there are as many commentaries on Genesis in the early church as all the other commentaries of all the other books of the Bible put together. So you're not just participating in the life of Christ; you're participating in the life of Israel and the life of the world. There's so there's a it's a very long story um, to con- contrast with with everyone else. No, that, that, that's exactly right, because, again, it, it depends you know, where there's a beginning, there is an end. And the uh, part of the message of Christ's teaching uh, was to prepare you for the imminent end of the world. Mm-hmm. So that does yeah. set you in the totality of time. And, we, and, of course, it gives a completely different way of thinking about time, um, which we, we could also discuss. So now Rome is legendarily full of religions. Um, and as you say, there are there are moments of peaceful coexistence and debate with Christians within the empire. And then there are a few moments of violence. So uh, why, what leads to those moments of violence? Why don't Christians fit in? I mean, other people are also, I mean, Jews, I, I mean, we can, there's a long list of other people who are at times persecuted and are subjects of violence. Why the Christians? Well, the Christians are thought of as atheists, um, and therefore their presence is offensive to the gods, if you're taking that. What does that mean, then? That's ex- that, what does it mean to be an atheist to a Roman t- in 200, say? To be an atheist means that you don't participate in civic cult. Okay. Um, that you deny the direct action of the gods in the, uh, in the world today. And... Most of the time, there are other groups of people we can think of as, as atheists, if you're an Epicurean, etc. But when we get to the third century, 
what we're beginning to see is that the political system, which is dependent upon the notion that the emperor is favored by God above all else, is open to question. There are a whole series of civil wars. I mean, the most dangerous job in the Roman Empire uh, is probably being the emperor. <laughs> uh, because you go from, you know, Alexander Severus murdered, Maximinus, his successor, uh, is murdered. The people who overthrow him, Pupianus, Albanus, are murdered. Gordian III is murdered. Philip the Arab is murdered. Decius takes over. He is the first one who orders everybody to sacrifice to the gods for the preservation of the empire. Then he dies in battle. Um, his immediate successor is murdered. His successor is murdered. Uh, Valerian is captured by the Persians. Now, Valerian had also ordered the first empire-wide persecution of the Christians, because, again, he's trying to restore this sort of notion of divine favor. And Valerian's capture by the Persians really undermined that. <laughs> and the first time that Christianity is declared legal is by Valerian's son, Gallienus, in 262. So could you um, also describe this? This is so people uh, get the idea is that, like, say, the middle of the uh, 200s, 250, this is a very unsettled time for uh, the, the the empire. Um, it's, com yeah. it, it's completely unsettled, and old certainties are being called into question. Again, I don't think it's accidental that Plotinus uh, and new ways of interpreting Platonism and the relationship of, per, of people and, and how you relate to the gods outside of sacrificial cult, you know, are, are also emerging at the same time. Um, uh, Diocletian uh, takes over in 284, and he creates a completely new imperial system, a new political system uh, based on a college of emperors. Let's get back to just a second. I, I, I want to stick with uh, cults for a, a moment and the attempt yeah. to create a new well you have to explain this because i i'm still unclear on this so we have we have one attempt to um we we describe the soul invictus there's invincible the worship of the invincible sun and then there's the really interesting uh episode of el gabal uh, i think i hope i pronounced it right which is a local deity um which has well get in get into that now could you describe both of these episodes and explain what the emperors involved are trying to do? Okay, well, um, El Gabal, whose name means God Mountain, is the local god um, in uh, Emesa in Syria. And in 218, there was a coup, uh, and the local priest of El Gabal, who was, was a teenager, was stuck on the throne, and he brings El Gabal to Rome and establishes his cult as the principal cult in the city. And then when he's murdered, the stone is sent back home. <laughs> now, um, let's go ahead, literally 50 years, because that was 222. Uh, Aurelian is reuniting the Roman Empire, which had split after the capture of Valerian into three parts, and he's fighting the Palmyrians outside of Ephesus. And he has a vision of the god who wins the battle for him. And this is El Gabal. But he reinterprets El Gabal. He's no longer God Mountain. He's Sol Invictus, the Invincible Sun. Okay. And this becomes Aurelian's chosen God uh, to explain how he is able to win back uh, the empire. So is he then trying to establish a new unifying Roman cult? 
or isn't that isn't that the isn't the task of the the worship of the the veneration of the emperor both living and dead isn't that supposed to create a, a unitary empire a worship a sort of a, a cultus well, that is that is the, the empire and an empire which is the cult well the imperial cult is not really seen as a cult in the normal way it is a form of political communication okay um nobody believed the emperor was a god not right. even the emperor believed the emperor was a god um what they did, it was a way of conceptualizing the power of the emperor. Uh, the emperor could do things that other people couldn't do. He could do you favors that other people couldn't uh, couldn't do for you. Um, so it is a vehicle, as earlier royal cults have been, of communicating between cities and the center of power. Um, the idea that there is a specific god guiding the emperor um, goes alongside that. And it's a really, who builds a giant temple uh, to Saul Invictus at Rome, is trying to say, okay, this idea of divine favor and my success go hand in hand. We have restored the order of the empire, except he was murdered. Yeah. So there's a tradition of this, of this establishment of a new, this is the God to whom the empire owes its salvation through me. Uh, I yes. worked in, I worked in the God's behalf. Here's his temple. Etc. Um, this brings us up then to, to Diocletian's extraordinary reforms and the extraordinary fact that after this uh, reign of terror against emperors, uh, he retires to not Diocletian. Um, I would I, I don't not mean Diocletian. Diocletian. Yeah, Diocletian. Um, he retires to uh, raise cabbages in his palace in Spoleto. Uh, so that's nice. Uh, he's how does he reform and, and alter the empire? And then what's the immediate well, um, what Diocletian tried to do was create a new system of succession. That The basic idea was the emperor chooses the next emperor. Um, when he took the throne, uh, he realized that one emperor couldn't manage the whole empire. Uh, he Im almost immediately promoted one of his friends, a guy named um, uh, Maximian, to be deputy emperor, and then he made him his slightly junior co-emperor. Um, and then when it became clear after uh, nine years that that wasn't sufficient, they created two deputy emperors, both of them their, became their son-in-laws, Constantius and Galerius. And most of the time what we can see is that the senior Augustus stays somewhat to the rear and Constantius and Galerius uh, do most of the fighting on the frontiers. Um, but this creates a stability that hadn't been there when the emperor was doing what the emperor was expected to do, which is lead from the front. Mm -hmm. um, now it's the Caesar who leads from the front. Mm -hmm. uh, and you can see this reflected, uh, for instance, on the Arch of Galerius um, in Thessaloniki today, uh, where he's engaging in hand-to-hand -hand combat with the king of Persia, which is actually an image they borrowed from the Persians. Uh, but the other thing is that Galerius, at the end of all of this, is seen as the great soldier of his era. He beat the Persians. He avenged the disaster of Valerian. And when Diocletian retires, he really betrays his own system because he doesn't give Constantius any choice as to who his deputy is going to be. Hmm. Uh, he makes the next two deputy emperors both associates of Galerius. Now, Constantius's staff is none too happy about this. Constantius himself is the senior emperor. 
he has a number of young children, and he has a son by his earlier marriage, Constantine, who at this point is training to be an imperial bureaucrat in the court of Galerius. Constantius said, uh -uh, send my son back. And within uh, the course of um, really uh, less than a year, uh, Constantine convinces the staff of Constantius uh, that they can work with him. And when Constantius dies in York, Constantine seizes the throne. In, um, uh, and, and is acclaimed emperor in what's now part of which is York Cathedral. So that's that's yes. uh, a Roman emperor in York, of all places. Um, I thought, wasn't his mother from there too, I thought? Anyway. No, um, that's, a, that's a myth. That's a myth, uh, okay. Was actually, she was actually from um, Western Turkey. There you go. Um, with this suitably cosmopolitan background uh, as befitting yeah. a, a Roman uh, a Roman emperor of the period. So this leads to civil war. Um, and uh, just to fast forward a little bit, uh, Constantine uh, assaults Rome itself. And then what happens? He, he well, wins, at the, wins at the Milvian Bridge and enters Rome. And I should say, and then there's a very significant moment, as I recall from, from reading a long ago, there's a significant moment in his triumph. Well, um, what happened is that Constantine, uh, there are many stories about what happened here. Yes. And the later you get, the weirder it gets. Sure. Um, the simple version, which was the only one that Constantine actually admitted to, uh, was that before his invasion of Italy, he had a vision and met a new god. Mm -hmm. um, and if you thought about who had invaded Italy previously, they'd all lost, including Galerius. Mm -hmm. So Constantine really, he writes ultimately in uh, 315 to a council of, of bishops saying, I was searching for a new god and I met the god who lives in the watchpost of heaven and he showed me how to be a better person. This is reflected in panegyrics of the period. He met divine mind. Mm -hmm. um, it's the Christian God. Mm -hmm. Now, later on, um, the story goes uh, that uh, before the, this is told by Eusebius in a uh, work that was never circulated in the West, um, that he saw a cross in the sky which said, in this sign, you will conquer, um, and therefore uh, became a Christian at that point. Um, but and I, just how bogus that story is is reflected in the fact that nobody in the West knew about it for hundreds of years. Mm -hmm. And it's it's um, interesting to see the difference with what Constantine said, which is something kind of, I don't know, a little more subtle. I mean, maybe not too much more subtle, but it's a very, I mean, a dream vision of the divine mind. that You could expect that from a lot of philosophers. I mean... Uh, well, it, exactly. But again, you know, he knows how to communicate with people. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, emperors talk to gods yeah. in person, in private, and this is the word that he's giving you from that conversation. And as I recall, I mean, say what you will about that, on his triumph, he does not offer sacrifice at the Temple of Jupiter. Right. He does which not. Is, which is key. <laughs> yeah. Well, the thing that I think that he took most rapidly, uh, and he brought a bunch of bishops with him to Italy, huh. was no sacrifice. But again, there's plenty of other pagans who say the same thing. Mm -hmm. You can say, and I, if you're a Neoplatonist, animal sacrifice, right out. So refusing to sacrifice is not a sign that you're necessarily a Christian. It's a sign that you have your own way of addressing the gods. Mm -hmm. So why? 
Now, one, you quickly uh, dismiss several um, sort of uh, stereotypical opinions about this. One was that Christianity was extraordinarily powerful, and uh, Constantine wanted to get on side with what was now the majority of the empire's population. That's, um, I think, is, is a view that fortunately nobody's really uh, had in a quite a long time. Um, just on most, the internet. <laughs> just on the internet, right. Yeah. Now, um, there's been a lot of really good work on the growth of the Christian community. Um, and I think our standard estimate was if 10% of the people in the empire were Christians, um, that would be absolutely the outer edge. Uh, Christianity is uh, primarily an urban religion, and most people in the Roman world live in the countryside. Mm -hmm. uh, so I was probably more like um, under 5% of the people in the empire were Christian. What's another another explanation uh, would be, uh, well, what? I mean, what's what are the other, what are this other explanations that have, that have been given for this? Well, um, the main uh, line that people have taken uh, is really uh, that Constantine is setting himself apart from uh, the system of uh, Diocletian. Diocletian uh, is um, Jovius, Maximian is Heraclius, and it's a very traditional um, appeal to cult. And Constantine, as a revolutionary, needs to come across and be somewhat different. Mm -hmm. There's no nobody would doubt the connection between Constantine's Christianity and his revolutionary path. It's just how revolutionary do you see it being? And uh, in point of fact, with Constantine, he allows space for Sol Invictus to continue. He puts Sol Invictus on his coins for a decade. Uh, when the palace is struck by lightning in the 320s, he writes to the prefect of Rome, says, could you consult the Heruspicase? He keeps his bets open. Yeah. Yeah. But so then what? So you've described Constantine as a revolutionary. Um, how is he the leader then of a revolutionary move, movement, given this circumspection, this hedging his bets? Well, as he goes on, he becomes a much firmer leader of the Christian church. Mm -hmm. um, we can see this initially in dealing with a quarrel in North Africa um, that broke out as soon as he came to Rome, the uh, so-called Donatist controversy. Um, and then after he takes over the Eastern Empire, um, and he intervenes to create the first universal Christian doctrine uh, in the Nicene Creed, uh, we can see that Constantine is involving himself far more directly in the church after um, his victory in 324 over Licinius. Mm -hmm. So it's a progressive change in Constantine's case. Uh, but by the end of his uh, reign, he has really brought an order to the Christian church as a centralizing intellectual movement in the Roman Empire that it had not been before. Mm -hmm. So hence his sponsorship as or the Nicene Creed, his sponsorship of bishops, his uh, his irritation with uh, things that are out of order and out of place, which Charlemagne will share with him in like times three. Um, these are the people, these are these often are the revolutionaries are actually sort of, they do have a bureaucratic mind. They do have an administrative mind. Well, that's why he's a successful revolutionary. <laughs> exactly. <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> this is the way it is going to work, but we're going to leave space for people to make up their own minds. 
So you, you write, the reason that Constantine was looking for a new god in the first place was that the established ideology of imperial government had been battered throughout the previous 100 years, a period of internal strife and defeat on the frontiers. We've established that. You say he was not the first emperor to look to establish a new ideology. He was the most successful, precisely because of this administrative, cautious, step-by-step approach. Exactly. And, I mean, he looked at Diocletian, and he knew that religious persecution didn't work. If you want to become a Christian, welcome to the club. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I'm delighted to have you. If you're a pagan and you can still do your job, you can be half as, I don't know, half as senior officials were pagans at the time of his death. But the imperial family was Christian. And you knew that you could probably get ahead faster if you were a Christian. And what we can see is just an enormous upsurge in the number of Christians in the empire in the course of the next 50 years, as people are following the lead of the emperor. Mm -hmm. Um, And that is really the the moment of what I would call a successful disruption, is you get people to say, I'm going from point A to point B, and I'm moving forward from there. Um, That I can still read Plato and Aristotle, but I'm reading Christian scripture along, along with it. Yeah, which is that we didn't discuss. That's another great advantage of, let's call it, I mean, to be crude in 21st century, the operating system of Christianity was that it allowed other lines of code, substantial ones, to be added to the tree. Um, You could read Plato and Aristotle. Um, As you say at the beginning, there's, it's a, I mean, based on what Peter says at the beginning of Acts, uh, the Christianity of the early church is very simple. Uh, it's, It's not hard to understand. Um, and then many things can then be added to it. Exactly. And if that wasn't the case, I wouldn't have a job. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. That's right. where Cicero, why we have Cicero. That's why I have Cicero. That's why I have all classical studies, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Well, let's move on to the, the second disruption in the book, the rise of Islam. Um, so we've, uh, we've seen that um, Constantine comes to power and he brings then Christianity along this, as you say, and just to quote you again, in this moment of this internal strife and defeat on the frontiers. Now, Muhammad's dates, let's we're gonna believe in his we're gonna we're gonna accept a historical Muhammad. You do. I think I think it's I think most people do uh, most scholars are now that we've we've uh, now. Well that's well, we, really, we really have to. Uh, we have to I think because of the fact that we now have texts of the Quran. The date to Muhammad's lifetime. Right. So his dates are roughly approximately when? Um, he's really active from between 620 um, and 632. So, okay. Um, meanwhile, <laughs> in the rest of the world, um, as we discussed in a, a, a podcast that just uh, dropped on uh, this the, the week that I'm recording this, um, I talked with Edward Watts, and we talked about uh, the, uh, the the basically the the feeling that anybody in the Roman Empire in the 600, from about 610 to 630, must have felt they were living in the last days. Um, it's it's like the apocalypse. Um, it's, you know, cats and dogs living together, earth and sky are falling off on each other, the ocean is, I mean, because you, this is key to the rise of Islam. So could you tell the story, that story Ab- your own way? Absolutely. Uh, in the uh, 640s, we have the arrival of the bubonic plague. Mm-hmm. Um, 540s and, or 640s? 540s. 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 Yeah. 
um, the arrival of the bubonic plague, huge loss of life, huge economic disruption. And then what we find is an increasing level of hostility between the Roman and Persian empires. Mm -hmm. Now, the Persian empire doesn't have a lot of money. It doesn't have an efficient tax base. And it's got a problem on its northern frontier. And it keeps asking the Romans to pay uh, so they can go fight uh, the Huns in the north, etc. Um, the Roman Empire doesn't have says, forget that. Um, and so we have a series of wars um, breaking out in the second half of the 6th century, which the Romans generally win. Mm-hmm. But then... And we, and we should say that, I mean, that the Persians might have money, but they have a great name. And yep. and for the Greek-speaking, reading Romans of the East, uh, who are reading their Herodotus, um, they're like participating in the campaigns of their ancestors. This is the, like, it's like the same war has restarted again between the West and the East. Exactly. And that is exactly the way the Romans uh, saw it. They don't mm-hmm. really understand. I mean, there's almost a deliberate misunderstanding of Iranian ideology, yeah. uh, where the, uh, there is a, a look back to the Achaemenids on the uh, Sasanian side, but it's because they are the ones who introduce Zoroaster, not because of the other empire. But still, um, in 600, there's a coup d'etat, um, and uh, a new emperor takes power who is incredibly inefficient. And the king of Persia, who owed his throne to the uh, to the emperor Morris, declares war. And uh, the Romans are beaten uh, for the better part, well, for 20 years. Um, there's a coup d'etat in the middle of it, uh, where Heraclius um, takes the throne, sailing from North Africa. Um, but at the same time, the Persians are allied with uh, Slavic kingdoms in the Middle East, and it looks like the empire is going to be destroyed. Um, on the other hand, what is happening is that the Persians are also usually campaigning at the end of their supply line. Uh, and Heraclius in uh, 628 makes a deal with the um, tribes north of the Persian Empire uh, to attack the Turkish tribes, to attack Persia. He moves directly into the uh, heartland of Iraq, um, which is not ready for this invasion at all, uh, defeats the uh, Persian army and compels the Persians to negotiate a peace treaty. Uh, There follows a period of extraordinary political instability uh, in the Persian court as you know, uh, the King Khosrow, who had been in charge of all of this, is deposed and executed, and then the next uh, emperor is deposed and executed, and you end up with a child um, as the figurehead uh, running the Persian Empire. Um, and I, the, the end result of the war uh, was that Persia looks like it was pretty much broke, and yes. so was Rome. So that was there. There it is. Persia ob- has obviously, to the Roman eyes, imploded, um, and uh, it's it, the child with no money on the throne. Um, God knows what other damage has been done to their economy, to their um, and to the their, their, their harvest. Probably more plague, more more famine, etc. Um, and then there's Rome, and it's victorious, but all the same things have happened to it. Exactly. I mean, most of the people now in the Roman Empire have been ruled by the Persians for the last 20 years. 
Right. And a Persian regime is is really different. First and foremost, um, Heraclius was a devoted Chalcedonian. There'd been a split um, in, again, the belief in the nature of God, uh, whether he has a human side or um, is purely divine. And if you're in the eastern part of the empire, um, you are also anti-Chalcedonian in your take. And when Heraclius comes in and says, no, everybody's going to believe in Chalcedon, uh, these are people who've been doing their own thing for 20 years. Mm-hmm. They resent it enormously. And so, uh, Herac- as, you, as you say, Heraclius does nothing to then ease the reintegration of these people into the empire. And exactly. He, and he needs taxes. He needs money badly. All of a sudden, he's got these new lands. He can tax them. Um, and what you get is uh, a, a, a tax bill and an interventionist boss. Mm-hmm. Um, who happens to be married to his niece. Um, we talked about with Edward, causes a certain amount of consternation uh, and, you know, yeah. in, the, in the gutter press. Uh, and maybe it's, as it's of the... T- but, you know, this is something we're going to see in, in other disruptions as well. If the, if the ruler has questionable personal life, his ability to tell you what to do yes. is really limited. And Heraclius doesn't understand that. Right. He says, I am the hero. I defeated the Persians. I am the greatest thing um, you know, since Augustus, and you all do what I uh, say. And not only does he alienate most of the Christian population of the East, he also then begins uh, to persecute the Jewish population, uh, and he um, breaks deals with the Arab tribes on the border because the Romans had subsidized them. He said, I'm, you know, I don't have this money anymore, and you guys, you, know, you don't need it because... He, he has a peace dividend, and he can yeah. uh, take advantage of it by not paying the Arabs or the Turks who had actually helped him uh, win the war against Persia. Um, so into this steps a merchant from Mecca. Um yeah. And we can see now this is the this is a, a very fruitful situation for him. So what does then what does he then offer to people in Arabia that they could not get from anyone else? What he offers is a new message uh, of salvation. Um, that he is completing the prophecies of earlier religions of Judaism and Christianity. That this is the latest word from God. Uh, the world is about to end. Join this community, but it's a community again with open borders. You can be a member of the community. You can be an associate of the community. The one thing you can't be is a pagan. Mm-hmm. But it cr- gives you a centralized ideology around a highly organized core of very effect- effective leaders. Um, these are the people with whom Mohammed. Uh, had, first of all, uh, returned from Medina and taken over Mecca and then allied with that group and taken over much of the rest of Arabia. And now they begin to move into Roman territory and Persian territory and things, Muhammad dies, but his immediate successors suddenly see that the resistance to their raids isn't what it would have been. Mm -hmm. The Persians can't fight back effectively. That Roman resistance is ineffective, that cities that they might have to besiege are simply surrendering mm-hmm. uh, to them. And, and Heraclius 
doesn't seem to think he's got a problem. Mm -hmm. The cities have had enough after another, a previous 20 years of warfare. Exactly. And, you know, they've gotten used to, you know, the Persians come, you surrender to the Persians. It's not a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what is change? You know, it's something that happens, and then you go back again. The mm -hmm. idea that there would be a complete fundamental alteration of the political order, I don't think occurred to anybody. In some ways, I, I well, this is, I know, debated, but there probably wasn't. I mean, even the, the Arabs very cleverly put up the garrison cities like Basra in Iraq or Cairo. These are, are, are garrison towns. Uh, they're not appropriating Alexandria. Um, or other city, or, or, or Baghdad at first. No, that's absolutely right. And what you have really are, is a giant power vacuum. Um, as the Persian Empire has collapsed, uh, Heraclius is withdrawn back into um, central Turkey. Um, he doesn't have the power to ex extend himself further. And there are, of course, a series of civil wars in the uh, Muslim community. Mm -hmm. As people are trying to define who is going to be in charge, what are the qualifications uh, for being in charge? Uh, and it really isn't until a half century after the death of Muhammad that you have Abdel Malik say, here is our system of government. It is based on the Quran and the interpretation of the will of Muhammad. Um, and uh, we have a bureaucracy um, that it, we are going to make function. Um, because there hadn't been a single governing ideology uh, before Abdul Malik uh, really stepped in and showed how you could use the teachings of Muhammad as the centerpiece of a new government. So in many ways, as you say, Abdul Malik, his actions are in many ways similar to those of Constantine in that he was working with a small group of dedicated followers to shape the new regime not just soldiers and administrators, but to judge from the coherence of the message, intellectuals who drawing out the essence of Muhammad's teaching to create practices which would set the new Arab governing class apart. Yeah, so, absolutely. So we have a second, and, and but he has a certain charism about him as well. I mean, it's Faber yeah. would say, but he also like he is a he's the charismatic administrator that you know. He he, he is absolutely, and. Um, in these first two disruptions, I think that the crucial thing that we can see is that the leader gives people a reason to follow without trying to ram a new set of beliefs down their throats. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, let's move on quickly uh, to another, uh, another jump forward another thousand years uh, to the Protestant Reformation. Um, uh, you have a lovely comparison, as I said to you when we started before we started recording. You compare young Charles V to Heraclius, and that works on so many levels um, that it's uh, it's worthy of of, of extended, uh, I think, meditation. So, could you explain why Charles V, who becomes Holy Roman Emperor and ill fatedly at Worms in 1519? There was another guest present. We'll get to him second in a, in a second, um, but. Charles is, uh, in some ways, um, the most powerful monarch at that moment who's ever lived. Um, exactly. he, and, and will become, in some ways, on paper, even better. Just like Heraclius is like King Arthur, if King Arthur had ex actually existed, only King Arthur would be saying, geez, I'm a wimp compared to Heraclius. Uh, Charles V is that kind of, of, that kind of monarch. Exactly. But he's also very young. Yeah. 
And he sees himself, like Heraclius, very much as a hero in his own story. But um, he, he is the ruler of a German state as well as the king of Spain, and he doesn't know German. And he goes around making snotty comments about it. he only speaks German to his horse. Yeah. Uh, Learned that in German no, school. <laughs> uh, there's a, a, an Ottoman threat uh, to the east that he's not really taking. That's the main concern of people who are living in Germany. Um, and most of the time he's spending his time fighting wars with the king of France and Italy. Uh, he's ignoring the German constituency that is the key to the Holy, to the Holy Roman Empire. I mean, he is a pretty good, he is actually a very good soldier himself. But in the changing world of warfare, uh, war is really expensive. Um, he doesn't understand that you've got to negotiate your authority with people. Um, if you're going to expect them to pay for your war, you've got to give them a reason to do it. Mm-hmm. And he routinely misses uh, these opportunities uh, to build a stronger society, to, to rebuild the power, a central power uh, of the Holy Roman Empire. And uh, the result is um, a political schism backing up a religious schism. Mm-hmm. Um, because, again, your ideology of rulership is based on the Bible. Mm-hmm. You rule because God created kingship. And Charles certainly believes that God created him. Um, Another thing about him is he tries to do it all himself. Yeah. And it's too big a job, like Heraclius. It's too big a job. And um, the the ego gets in the way uh, of functional government. So... He, as I said, he's at Worms in April 1519, um, there to be, I think, I think that's the official moment of his election. All the electors are present. And there's some other items on the agenda. And one is this Augustinian friar from Wittenberg, a junior professor at a brand new research university in the, you know, the forgotten part of Germany at the time. Um, Martin Luther. Now, um, in all these cases, there's a problem of, of, of cult and of worship. Um, if we're going to put this in generic terms, what do you see as the problem of worship and cult in 1519? Uh, what's, what's Luther responding to? All right, I might push back on this a little bit. No, well, Luther is responding uh, to what has become the exceptionally important doctrine of purgatory mm-hmm. uh, in the Catholic Church. That what you have to, that there, when you die, unless you are a saint, you're going to be left in purgatory. And how do you get out again? Your family can buy you out of purgatory. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a doctrine that had developed in the course of the previous uh, really two to 300 years. No, um, I, I would say even longer than that. I mean, the, well, Abbey, of, the, the Abbey of Cluny does very well out of praying for people's you know, souls yeah. in the 900s. And you know, there, there, there are glimpses of it in Augustine, yeah. you know, et cetera. Um, and if you're Northern European, purgatory is a really nasty place to be. I mean, mm. in Dante, it's just boring. Uh, but in, a, in Northern, yeah. But Dante, um, Dante is sui generis, so that's probably. But in, in Northern Europe, it's 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 like a it's like a lesser version of hell. 
Exactly. And so you really, you know, you want to get your family out of there. And people are funding foundations uh, all over the place um, and shipping enormous. And then with uh, the, when the Catholic Church arrives at the notion that you can purchase an indulgence, uh, which will shorten your family members' time in purgatory, um, well, what it's doing is effectively sucking enormous amounts of money out of Northern Europe to fund projects in Italy. Mm-hmm. So and there have all... That's the political element of it. So Ron Rickers, who's been on the podcast before, historian of the Reformation, would say that uh, Luther's primary concern is consolation. I mean, what 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 Luther what angers Luther is the how dis, the despair of the people that he is confessing um, or that he he deals with. But how that's and that's that's the purgatorial as he sees it the purgatorial the the that's where the purgatorial regime for Luther is Antichrist. Um, that's where it crushes people's souls rather than gives them hope and, and, and love. Politically, however, the purgatory regime is an economy and we, of immense proportions uh, that would that sort of stagger the mind when you start to count up the, the, the in, in contemporary equivalents. Exactly. You know, and Frederick of Saxony um, had actually objected, has already started to objecting to allowing the money from the sale of indulgences to leave Saxony. So there is already a political objection, but to back up the political objection, you need an ideological core. Mm -hmm. How can you say the Catholic Church is wrong to get this money? Well, Martin Luther is going to show you why, because of the power of grace, Mm -hmm. that you are saved by grace, you are saved by God, you are not saved by money. And Luther is also able to point to other people who have shown you know, the key documents of the, uh, of the Catholic Church, uh, for the so-called donation of Constantine, are forgeries, that there are problems in the translation of Jerome's translation of Scripture, that the authority of the intellectual authority of the Catholic Church is based on mistakes. Mm-hmm. Um, and what Luther has also is a really good understanding of the printing press. Um, he may or may not, and I think he did nail the 95 Theses because he was a showman, he nailed the 95 Theses to the door of the church, and they're in print the same day. Yes. Frederick of Saxony's got him on his desk. Um, he understands that you have to communicate in the language of the people. Mm-hmm. That you know, Luther writes to people in German, and the Catholic Church is insisting on communicating in Latin. Mm-hmm. He's saying that God is here for you in a very different new, exciting way. Um, And Frederick of Saxony may not have been too keen on this notion that you don't like relics and things like that because it's a giant collection of relics. Mm. Um, But he understands that Luther's message reinforces the political message. And when Luther stands up in front of Charles V in what has got to be one of the greatest dramatic moments in European history, and just says, here I stand. Yeah. And I will not recant my beliefs. It's an extraordinary moment. And then since he's a good sports fan as well, uh, he knows how to make the gesture of victorious knight as he's taken from the room. Right. I always, always like that. Because you know? um, it gets, gets us back to the idea of athletes and of Aegon and all the rest of it from, uh, from the, our first disruption. Um, there's that of risk and of uh, of benefit from risk. 
And then he goes off to, you know, his, his be hot, hit away first nine months, which he spends, you know, as you say, complaining about his uh, digestive system, but also translating the New Testament into a very muscular, hard charging German, which gives us modern German. So he, yeah. it, it, he, and then it's printed very quickly. Exactly. And um, I mean, that's another significant aspect of the Reformation and the, the sudden use of the vernacular for translations of the Bible, uh, because also it, you know, ultimately is going to normalize the English language as well. Yes, right, uh, exactly. So, um, and, I, and he he builds up his own group of followers. Again, this is a relatively narrow group of fellow travelers is a crucial aspect to any kind of disruption. Mm-hmm. You know, that people are going to go out and explain what R- Luther thinks. Um, Frederick is building up the the same uh, collection of rulers in southern Germany. Luther is very careful to know what the limits of his uh, revelation are. He is not going to go support a peasant's revolt Mm -hmm. because he needs the princes to support him. Mm -hmm. And the princes need Luther's teachers to go out and spread a new message um, throughout their uh, their principalities. So it, it's so as with Abdel Malik or with Constantine, there's a sort of um, they might be uh, Luther. Luther is not an administrator, though. We have to unlike the other two. Um, he, he's very far from no, that. Far he's from not. He's uh, he's whatever a systematic theologian is. He's an unsystematic theologian. Um, he uh, but he is a very conservative and iterative um, revolutionary. Um, there is a way in which he could easily have taken against Frederick and might have succeeded as a demagogue, but he's not simply a demagogue. Um, he wants something else. I mean, he could have torn down princes for a while. He could have been Thomas Munzer if he wanted to be only successful. Uh, but that's not the way he works. No. And I mean, there is a practical side to Luther that understands that if his church and his revelation is going to work. It's going to need political clout behind it. Um, and and I, he's the son of a minor. He doesn't have that clout. Yeah. And he's not going to, uh, He, I'm sure that he doesn't insist on bishops as much because he doesn't want to uh, step, he doesn't want to become a political figure in the way that bishop has to be a political figure, the, the way that he's known bishops to, to act. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, and I, he sees the, the job of the preacher to be a teacher. Mm-hmm. And religion is a way of shaping your life, but within a political system that somebody else runs, uh, which is a radical shift away from the alliance of the Catholic Church um, and the government of the Holy Roman Empire, the government of France. And, and nor is he somehow opposed on ideological. He could have come up with all sorts of reasons why Charles V was the Antichrist. But even in 1530, when and then later on, when Charles is trying to get Protestants on board a war against the Turks, um, Luther is open to persuading Charles to live and let live. Um, he's not going to engage in some sort of holy war, perpetual holy war, against uh, Charles. That's exactly right, because I think in the long run, Luther thought that ultimately people would realize he's right. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, what, um, how, how do, but of course, Luther is not the leading um, 
he's not the leading man of the Protestant Revolution in some ways. Calvin is. Or at least Calvin comes up with a different way of articulating Reformation practices, which are extremely more pervasive than Luther's own. So, could you is that could you explain that sort of I, shift? I think that's a, that's fair, but the the difference is that Luther is always at the center of his movement. Calvin, in the areas where Calvinism becomes most prominent, in the Netherlands, in mm-hmm. England is not there. Mm-mm. And we know so little about, Cal- there are no personal anecdotes about Calvin, or maybe like three. Um, yeah, I mean, he's, a, he's a, a, a French lawyer with a very powerful personality. Yeah. Um, he and Luther, obviously, they, they didn't get along very well at all. Um, Melanchthon, uh, Melanchthon and Calvin did, Melanchthon and Calvin actually seem to have a genuine human friendship, which is, which is that's as close to human as Calvin comes in, is in letters to Melanchthon. No, Luther, yeah. Luther's, Luther's sort of, Humanist, I should say, listeners for you, his uh, Luther's uh, humanist uh, intellectual sort of, uh, I don't, not acolytes, not fair, but sort of his support and friend. Yeah. Yeah. No, they, they, that's right. They're, they're very different. But the strength of Calvin is that he provides a much stronger sort of, um, attack on the existing political. He's appealing to people who want to change the political system in the way that Luther does not. And, um, you know, hence the appeal of Calvinism, where there is a political revolution going on, um, because he enunciates what's ultimately the critical doctrine that if the king does not rule in the interest of the people, the king is not doing the king's job. Um, which is going to be critical uh, for uh, William of Orange, mm-hmm. and also uh, across the Atlantic, across the Channel. Um, and uh, Henry VIII has his own reasons to want to have his own church. I mean, he's mm-hmm. a very complicated person. Uh, but again, the idea of the disestablishment of the church and the formation of a new church uh, by Cramner. Uh, and Cromwell, again, people who got on very well, who understood what they were doing. You know, it often seems the case that Henry wasn't quite sure what he was doing except for finding a new wife. Mm-hmm. Um, or Cramner and Cromwell are reshaping the institutions of the Christian church um, uh, in, their, in their own way, and that ultimately the Church of England moves in a more... I mean, they're still going to have bishops and things that Calvin doesn't believe in, um, uh, but is still going to move into a very much less highly structured uh, environment and with a much simpler um, liturgy uh, than it had had in the past. And with um, an even as just as great, if not greater, use of the printing press. Um, yeah. Someone someone wanted to point out to me that Calvin's the first the first edition of Calvin's Institutes were printed so that they could be put in your pocket. Um, yep. They're very short. They become enormous later on, but the first edition is just a small, a small. Um, it's not even an octavo. I don't think it's like a duodecimo. I guess, and you could put it in your pocket as you're like running out the back door as the king's guards were coming in the front door. But it was, it was like to get back to the software metaphor. It's a very simple set of. I think Calvin is as a personalityless as a software coder. 
um, he's writing a complicated set of operating, much more complicated set of operating instructions, but they're not that long. And you can refer to them and learn them and improve yourself from them. Um, and they are very replicable and they can go everywhere. That's, that's exactly right. And, um, you know, the Protestant Reformation is as much a technological reformation as it is an ideological reformation. I mean, there's a reason uh, why people like, you know, Thomas More start getting really upset uh, when he's, you know, um, with Tyndall's translation of the Bible, because mm -hmm. he is seeing how the word is getting out and he can't control it. Yeah. Yeah. And is yeah, it? Yeah, do you, yeah, I mean, is that something new? That were there? It was I. I I, I don't know if it, in anyone in the classical period ever got upset by any technological innovation. Maybe the book? Well, you know, the technological innovation is not really something that goes, uh, you know, that we see much of in the, in the classical world. Uh, your chances are, you know, you go from a papyrus roll to a, uh, yeah. uh, to a codex. Codex. Um, yeah. But, there are some technological changes. I mean, water wheels. There's some practical things um, to make but life. This is better. a whole separate other uh, conversation, which we must we must ignore. We because we we've only gotten through three of these disruptions. So and I and we're near the end of our time. So I want to at least uh, draw some general principles from what we've talked about so far. Um, what are we, we? I think we've indicated them in the in the course of conversation. But what are, then are the defining characteristics of these disruptions and the ones that we we haven't talked about as well? Let's go back to the the matter in your preface. We've talked about this uh, a rather conservative a conservative revolutionary would seem to be one of them. Exactly, as a revolutionary who understands that they need to create a space for people to move along with them. That. Mm -hmm. A revolutionary who tries to ram their ideas uh, down the throats of everybody else is not going to be successful. They can be incredibly disruptive, um, as we would see you know, in, with, say, Robespierre uh, and the terror. Uh, but a successful disruption involves the creation of a new kind of central space for people to occupy, for them to exchange ideas, for them to be able to work in. Mm -hmm. Um, the second, I think, major point is that you have to have a convincing new message. Um, as Constantine did when he said, okay, this is now Christianity. As Abdul al-Malik says, this is now how we're going to use Islam. As our friends Luther and Calvin did, this is our new way of understanding uh, the relationship uh, between uh, man and God, humans mm -hmm. and God. And we could go on to the other revolutions, uh, you know, the, the not just Jefferson, but the drafters of the Declaration of Independence are saying, this is the new way of understanding the relationship between government and its and the citizens who form it. Uh, Marx is saying, this is the way of understanding all of history, <laughs> um, and so on. Exactly. And, and I, Locke and uh, Rousseau and Montesquieu, these are all people on the, on the fringe. Mm-hmm. The people who come up with these ideas that Jefferson and later Hamilton Madison all use, uh, first of all, to justify a revolt against the British crown, uh, and then, amazingly, to create a new central government, having just fought a war mm -hmm. to get rid of a central government. Mm -hmm. um, 
But again, you know, the framers of the Constitution were by and large people who knew how to get along, who knew how to work together, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which is very different from what we saw and we'll see in France at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, well, any other characteristics about the role of technology, at least in the, at least in certainly since since the Reformation, if not before. Since the Reformation, absolutely, technology has been a central. Being able to understand how to use a new technology. Um, yeah, the printed word is crucial to the American Revolution. The printed word, the control of the press, is a crucial aspect of what goes on in France um, in the 1790s. And then uh, we move into the 20th century. The first thing that Lenin does is shut down opposition newspapers. Um, uh, Hitler. Um, is very keen on radio and television. Again, he's, he's using technology in ways that his opposition hasn't thought of. He's the first person to fly around Germany. He gives the same speech every time, but there he is present in ways that the, that the opposition isn't. He understood ways of getting the message out uh, that other people did not. So you had five, five disruptions in the book. Um, uh, did are these the only moments of going over the waterfall, or did, were there some other ones that you thought mm, sort of maybe they weren't quite a cataract, but maybe a cascade, and it didn't make the cut? Well, I think what we could look at are disruptions or radical changes. I mean, I, for instance, the Industrial Revolution. Mm-hmm. Uh, but essentially, what that does is it strengthens uh, the existing political order. Mm-hmm. Um, so. While it changes the way everybody lives, it doesn't so much change um, the structures that are governing them. And, you know, landholders own factories, merchants own uh, the uh, the productive methods. Um, I thought a bit about the Mongol invasions again, which wipe out kingdoms across Central Asia, but they don't really leave much in their place. Mm-hmm. Um, so those would be, uh, those were two things that I, I was certainly considering, but I felt they didn't have the same impact, uh, long-term structural impact that the, the other disruptions that we've discussed have. Um, if I were to go back further in time, the, uh, the one big disruption uh, would be the failure of the Roman Republic and the emergence of the Roman monarchy. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, I, I- I I was I was even thinking of uh, I, I think another disruption, and we've talked with uh, Ed Klein about his book on the uh, the, the crisis of eleven hundred BC. Um, that, that that in some ways, whatever happened in the Mediterranean world in around eleven hundred, the the end of the Mycenaean era, that certainly qualifies as a disruption of some kind. Cults that, change. That certainly does. You know, uh, po- polities no, that, change. That absolutely does. Yeah. Uh, that was the only one I could uh, would 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 add to to this. Um, the and and you were I, I people might say he left so much out, but I would say that yeah, that that uh, David Potter is a very modest, and he's sticking to things he he doesn't he's not going to write about China. He could write about Chinese history or Indian history, and there are certainly disruptions there. But you don't read Chinese or Sanskrit, yeah. so you're going to need to stay away from that. That's absolutely right. <laughs> Um, I'm curious, just in, in conclusion, um, how did you change your mind in the course of thinking through this book? Um, uh, I was just listening to a scholar the other day saying, if, uh, your mind, if I don't change my mind at least uh, once in the course, if I don't change my opinion once in the course of writing about something important, then I'm, I realize I'm not doing it right. 
Um, did you have that experience? Well, absolutely. Um, and I, I, was, I was constantly rethinking things. And um, I mean, I think in a, in a way, suddenly seeing Heraclius and Charles V uh, side by side as similar figures was a big revelation for me. Um, but also, you know, coming to, to, I had really not understood just how evil um, people like Galton were um, uh-huh. and the, the real power of social Darwinism um, in the latter part of the 19th century and how we are still living with that today. How pervasive um, it was. I idea. mean, you'll find yeah. people, people adherence to it in the strength. You'll find that people that you might venerate in all sorts of ways, then you find are actually also, also a eugenicist. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, and I think, um, you know, that uh, was probably the most unpleasant revelation I had mm-hmm. uh, in the course of writing the book. Um, and the fact that, you know, we still are looking at a basically a social Darwinist approach uh, in the attacks on immigration mm-hmm. uh, here in, in Europe. Our problems don't stem from immigrants, they stem from other things. But mm-hmm. the idea that you can create an ideology of conflict and use that to uh, to justify uh, a broken policy. This is, I mean, you've written big books, a book on ancient sport, a book on the, the creation of the Roman. These are, those are big topics, but this is an enormous topic. Uh, is this the sort of the largest scoped uh, book that you've ever tackled and uh what led you what led you yeah (laughs) we can't we don't have the video but he is he's laughing very hard to himself uh uh this is the largest bus so what what provoked you to do this and how and how long did it take to read into this i mean you've been reading into it your entire life but beyond that yeah well i was i can say this is the one thing i owe to the former president um (laughs) the in, uh, and, I, it's, and you were probably there for the, the Charlottesville yeah. uh, riots. And when you have a president who is existing essentially in conflict with the political system and the moral system of a society, how did we get there? Mm-hmm. Was a, a question. How has this happened? What are we looking at today? And how have big changes taken place? Are we on the verge of a really big change or something really nasty, potentially permanent happening here now between you know, the former president and the, and the culture of lies that he spawned, mm-hmm. Boris Johnson in the UK, uh, mm-hmm. the different anti-democratic uh, movements throughout the European Union? What kind of moment are we at now? And so that led me to think about what could we learn from the past about where we are today. Yeah. No, I mean, it, it, it's very true. Since about 2014, 2015, even 2015, I think, um, I uh, was thinking about this, but not to such good ends. Because when you saw um, to, my, to what was in my head at the time, it was not just Brexit, but Jeremy Corbyn. And then, mm-hmm. um, and then uh, not just uh, Donald, not just a guy who hadn't, been a Republican winning the Republican nomination, but a guy who hadn't been a Democrat almost winning the Democratic nomination. Um, th- these are very interesting trends on all parts of society that that make you realize. What my my wife calls this the party of the middle finger, which is like uh, it's just a transatlantic party 
um, and maybe a majority on both sides of the Atlantic. Um, but the um, when you see trends that um, that go beyond um, simple politics, then you realize you're in the middle of something big. Um, fish all have their own feeding patterns, but all of a sudden we're talking now we're talking about the ocean. No, that's 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 absolutely right. And you know, I think what we do you know, as historians is we show people how we can use the past um, to understand where we are in the present. Using the past to think about the present, I mm-hmm. think, is a, is a really critical thing to do. Well, my guest today has been David Potter. He's the author of Disruption, Why Things Change. David Potter, thank you so much for being part of Historically Thinking. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a really very great, fun conversation for me. Just a brief reminder, if you're listening to Historically Thinking on the website, that's great. But for your convenience, you can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Pandora, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, GeoSavin, Podchaser, TuneIn, Deezer, and there are more. In fact, wherever there are podcasts, there you can find Historically Thinking. While great reviews are wonderful on whatever platform you want to write them, the best possible review that you can give us is to forward the podcast to a friend you think will find it interesting. You can also follow us on Twitter at hist underscore think or on Facebook.